Any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, its employees, and affiliates. Welcome to Gut Check, a podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Douglas Drosman, Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and Founder, President Emeritus and Chief Executive Officer of the Rome Foundation. Dr. Drosman has been a driving force behind the Rome Foundation and the Rome Criteria for the past 30 years. As many of our listeners know, Dr. Drosman is an expert in the field of functional bowel disorders, now called disorders of gut-brain interaction. He has authored hundreds of peer-reviewed publications, most of which have focused on disorders of gut-brain interaction, and has lectured extensively throughout the world on these common disorders. Finally, Doug is a strong advocate of the value of good communication skills to improve the patient-provider relationship. He has set up highly successful training programs to teach providers how to optimize their care with patients. So Dr. Drosman, welcome. What a delight to have you here today. Let's begin simply. What are disorders of gut-brain interaction, which we may refer to in our talk today uh, as DGBIs? Well, thanks for having me, Brian. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And I think that's a good first question. Um, instead of us now using functional GI disorders, uh, the problem there is it implies uncertainty or that the problem is psychiatric. Uh, this is the way the term functional often comes across. So we now use disorders of gut-brain interaction since Rome 4, because it's a more scientific way of approaching DGBIs. It's a disruption in the brain-gut connection. And this can lead to these symptoms like abdominal pain, dyspepsia, and bowel issues. If I could just give as an example about the brain-gut axis and why we do that, uh, looking at GI pain, pain signals travel down from the gut to the brain. Then the brain uses the gate control system to send signals back down through the spinal cord to modify or even block the pain. That's the gate control theory. But when this system is dysregulated because of anxiety or depression, or even when the pain is constant, the brain cells kind of wear out. And as a result, the brain can't downregulate the pain as effectively and the pain gets worse. That's why we get a DGBI. And with our Rome classification system, we now have over 50 adult and pediatric DGBIs, each with their own criteria. Great background for our discussion today. So how common are these disorders of gut-brain interaction? Oh, they're really common. It, um, I think the, the good thing is that Ami Sperber, who's on with the Rome Foundation, completed an international survey of over 70,000 subjects in 33 countries. And the, the data across countries is pretty specific. Um, with that database, we found that about 40% of the general population have at least one DGBI. It's about one third more common in women. And these disorders may get less common as people get older. 
Um, and then some of the more diet, common diagnoses would be constipation, functional constipation at about 12%, dyspepsia at about 7%, uh, functional diarrhea about 5%, and IBS at about 4%. Wow, 40%. That's a lot of people. One reason why we're chatting today, because these disorders are so prevalent. And you mentioned there are over 50 adult and pediatric disorders of gut-brain interaction. Are these disorders related or interrelated, or do they just exist as a singular diagnosis? Yeah, th there's overlap. Um, and, and the overlap, I think, if you think of it physiologically, I believe it relates to the central mechanism for surveying incoming visceral data. And if the mechanism is not working right, the threshold drops and you get more signals and you get more symptoms, not only GI. Um, in, in, in fact, in Ami's study, he found that 40% had, had one G DGBI, as we mentioned, but 68% um, had another diagnosis of that group of 40%, and 22 had two diagnoses, and seven had three diagnoses. So we know that as these disorders overlap more, we're seeing more severe symptoms. We're seeing more comorbidities and poor quality of life. So I think it's a reflection of the brain's filtering mechanism. So it really shouldn't surprise providers that they may encounter patients not with just one DGBI, but a second or even a third, and their quality of life will be more severely impaired. Yeah, and as, as a clinician, uh, you know, what's it like when you see someone coming in with three or four or five diagnoses? You know there's a lot going on there in terms of how they're doing. Absolutely. And I think we're going to kind of circle back to that because I think sometimes that can be overwhelming for providers, but I think we're going to learn some tricks today about how to deal with that. So, um, Doug, how do these disorders of gut-brain interaction develop? Well, I, I, I think to talk about that, it's a complex thing, is to talk about the biopsychosocial model, which is something I've been involved with uh, since my training with George Engel, um, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, he talks about the interaction of biologic, psychologic, and social sy systems that maintain a balance in the body or a homeostasis. And when there's an imbalance in any system, it can affect the other systems and it can relate to biologic factors. You can talk about disruption, mucosal immune dysfunction or the microbiome or certain foods that could be you could be sensitive to like gluten or psychosocial factors like anxiety, a history of trauma. And these can influence the brain's regulation of this axis, this brain-gut axis. And when they're persistent and significant enough, that's when you get the disorder. It's an imbalance in those systems. And maybe it wouldn't surprise us then, too, if somebody's in a pretty stable course, if there's some new environmental influence or a new stomach flu or medication drive change, it might perturb that system as well, right? Exactly. And how you deal with it depends on what the other factors are. If you have a, a, an infection and you have psychologic distress at the time, you're more likely to get IBS than if you don't have the psychologic distress. So they all interact. 
just kind of layer on, don't they? And so thinking about these risk factors you mentioned for developing gut-brain interaction, are, are there some uh, groups we should identify? As an example, are women much more likely than men to develop a DGBI? Are younger patients more likely than an older patient? Sure. I mean, we uh, I mentioned with the epidemiologic study that women were a third times more likely to develop a DGBI. There is a slight family influence, but it's very hard to sort out what's genetic and what relates to early family modeling of the illness as a child. Uh, we, we learned from uh, Rona Levy and other investigators that, that early parental modeling around illness, whether you take the, the child to the doctor or you attend to it more, is more likely to lead to more likely going to doctors later in life and having these symptoms. And we know that trauma and other stressful experiences can influence the development and severity of IBS. We know the microbiome, uh, when there's a greater prevalence of the so-called bad bacteria uh, or less diversity in the types of bacteria, that's more likely to lead to a DGBI. Uh, an infection in a stressful environment, as I mentioned, can develop post-infection IBS. Dietary factors, high FODMAP foods and those susceptible with, uh, will have low sensation threshold and the food, the FODMAPs will lead to gas and distension and that will trigger symptoms. Um, with women, menstrual symptoms can start or worsen IBS symptoms. Uh, they get more cramping and diarrhea in the perimenstrual period. And then we see these comorbidities like fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis, POTS, pelvic floor disorders. They're seen more commonly in people with IBS and their association makes their IBS symptoms worse. So such a nice overview about the pathophysiology. So clearly it's not just one single pathophysiologic event that causes a DGBI to develop in all patients, but rather immune dysfunction in some, a prior infection, environmental stress, other coexisting diseases. It's a whole myriad of things, isn't it? And that's the challenge for the neurogastroenterologist. You have to look at all these factors and see which what's the interaction of these factors and which are more dominant, because that's going to affect treatment. Taking that history, trying to identify, I call them insults, these insults to the GI tract, to the body, to the brain, uh, can take some time, but it is, really pays off, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, recognizing, as you've already mentioned, lots of different pathophysiologic events and lots of different types of disorders of gut-brain interaction, is there a single symptom or a set of symptoms that seems to characterize all of these disorders? No, um, I think with, with DGBI, you're looking at the dysregulation of GI symptoms. And I think one of the most dominant one that we often consider is, is pain, uh, bloating and pain and sensory disturbances. But there are also motor disturbances like diarrhea and constipation, uh, vomiting. So I think uh, there are interactions about GI functioning that are being dysregulated at the level of the brain. 
So Doug, you've already mentioned the, the prevalence of these very common disorders and the symptoms, but what about the impact on patients? What's really the impact on patients and the impact on the healthcare system of these very common disorders? Well, for patients with DGBI, you can range from sub-threshold symptoms, um, you know, having a bad day because of diarrhea or cramping, um, to meeting criteria for diagnosis and even having severe diagnosis and poor quality of life. So we have some patients who continue to function normally where others, the ones we see as neurogastroenterologists, have a, have, have a major decline in their well-being. And, and I think this relates um, to resiliency. Uh, I think the ability to adapt, recover, and maintain well-being in the face of these symptoms and stress. Um, some resiliency is innate. Some of us naturally are more resilient, but it also can be learned. And I think this is where the treatments like brain gut behavioral therapies can enhance resilience by reducing maladaptive thinking and help the patient regain control. And my area of interest with neuromodulators can raise symptom thresholds reduce, and that can reduce the emotional distress and enhance mental capabilities, uh, even to help the patient do the work of therapy. Now, for healthcare, it's really complicated. Uh, I think when we're dealing with DGBI and, and other non-structural disorders like fibromyalgia, chronic pain, there are no structural abnormalities. And in our healthcare system, because of the dualistic model, um, they're considered second class or not real. And when providers don't understand its reality or how to diagnose it and even to treat it, they rely on more tests. They view the patients as psychiatric. And then this leads to unnecessary expenditures in healthcare costs, treatment failure, patient dissatisfactions. And the providers may exhaust these healthcare resources searching for the correct diagnosis, when in reality, I think the diagnosis using Rome criteria and treatments are readily available. So I think we need to educate the healthcare providers uh, how to communicate and connect better with their, their patients. And ultimately, I think this will reduce the burden on the healthcare system. You know, this has been a significant area of my work. Absolutely. I think there's one estimate that we spent about $20 billion a year just diagnosing and treating patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And you're right. You know, that fifth CAT scan is unlikely to show much of anything, and it increases healthcare costs and makes patients worried um, and even exposes them to radiation, right? Yeah, you, you have to believe that this is a real disorder and you won't see anything structurally. So, so stop, keep ordering accept what they have, and then work with that. So Doug, with these prevalent disorders, what's the natural history of these disorders of gut-brain interaction? Do they just eventually resolve on their own or do they always require treatment? And one question that comes up from patients is, do these increase the risk of something more serious like colorectal cancer or inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that there's variability, as I said before, perhaps one of the best kinds of getting ways of getting IBS, for example, is if you're an adult 
who gets post-infection IBS. Um, th th those are people who eventually do well and many actually recover because they don't have the prodrome of enabling comorbidities going on. Uh, but those with lifelong symptoms that begin in childhood and who have psychological comorbidities and who tend to retain their symptoms. And those are the patients who are much more severe uh, with poor quality of life. And then there's the middle ground that we often see uh, where symptoms wax and wane. And what we're doing is we're treating them with baseline medications. Things get worse. We reassess the situation, not necessarily getting tests, but reassess how they're doing, modify their medications. So, um, you know, uh, you need an early diagnosis. Uh, you need to get good natural history of, of the disorder going back to childhood to try to get this profile of, of, of what the nature of the intervening factors are. And I think it's accomplished by engaging with the patient in a patient-centered care model and giving proper treatments as, as I know we're not talking about that today, but in general, there are dietary approaches, neuromodulators, uh, peripheral neuromodulators like treating diarrhea and constipation and pain and the brain gut behavioral treatments and central neuromodulators like antidepressants. To, to your, other, your last point, there's no evidence that a DGBI increases the risk for cancer or inflammatory bowel disease. The problem is making sure you don't have it. Uh, so you want to exclude that diagnosis. And then when you made the diagnosis, um, there's no evidence that it's more susceptible to getting these conditions, but they're not immune to getting them. And you have to always keep an open eye. If things change, they lose a lot of weight or they get uh, blood in the stool, then you have to reevaluate re the situation. And doing what you do so well, a lot of this is that conversation with the provider and the patient, confidently making that diagnosis, using clear words, clear language, educating the patient, reassuring them, and then really getting them on a treatment plan while sometimes minimizing tests, right? Right. Yeah. And I want to speak to that too, because you know we're speaking in generalities about these DGBIs, disorders of gut-brain interaction. There are so many. But just to clarify what you said a little bit, you know, let's think about either IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, or chronic constipation. Is there a single test that we need to order for every patient that will just make that diagnosis? Do we have a biomarker? Does everybody need a colonoscopy and a CAT scan? Or should this be more of an individualized approach? Well, yes. Um, I, I think, of course, there are guidelines that go beyond DGBI. You know, if you're over 45 or 50, depending on the, uh, the, the recommendation, you would do a colonoscopy in that patient. Um, uh, uh, there is general guidelines to look for celiac disease. I think those are if they have diarrhea, but in general, it's a more individualized approach. I mean, you and I, along with other neurogastroenterologists in the field, have made significant strides in addressing the diagnosis through the Rome Foundation which provides clear guidelines. So you do your basic screening studies, uh, which, which are straightforward, not too expensive unless you need a colonoscopy. Uh, and then you look, you make the guidelines. If there's significant weight loss and a lot of pain, you might do a CT. But in general, you make the diagnosis of IBS after you've excluded those and you treat uh, 
and you follow. And I think this knowledge, the data are that once the diagnosis is made, the likelihood of another disorder coming is relatively small. And when it does come, you know it because there are other factors uh, that come up that make you want to pursue other um, you know, uh, diagnostic tests. And, and, and I, you know, my, my foundation, Drossman Care, works with the Rome Foundation to provide educational resources and publications and videos to teach communication skills. Because when you have a good engagement with the patient, you're not having the patient say, doc, my pain's not better. What are you gonna do for me now? I want another CT scan. They're gonna say, what do we do? And we can talk about the symptoms in their management. Doug, so many amazing teaching pearls there because what oftentimes comes up is, do we have that great biomarker? If I just had that one single biomarker test to make confidently make that diagnosis, but what you've just told us is, take a great history, do that careful exam, which reassures the patient, limited testing that's appropriate, confidently make that diagnosis and initiate therapy and use the Rome criteria because that combination of things probably is the best biomarker. That's right. Yeah. That is exactly right. So for our listeners, as we wind down here, we've just encapsulated 30 years and hundreds of research articles into a 20-minute conversation uh, <laughs> talking about disorders of gut-brain interaction, this, these incredibly prevalent disorders. And Doug, as you and I already discussed, we're going to leave treatment of, this, of these disorders for another conversation. But before we sign off, do you have any last thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, if I could make a mini advertisement for anyone interested in learning about these disorders, uh, I published along with my co-author, um, Johanna Ruddy, who, as many of you know, in, in her patient advocacy, she was a patient of mine, and 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 through our relationship, we, we learned a lot about collaborative patient-centered care, and we published three books. Uh, the first book, is about these DGBIs and how to communicate better. The second book is about my patients and how they self, through their narrative, how they got better. And the third book that just came out is about many providers and what they learned. And if you're interested, there's a, there's, there's a website, www.gutfeelings.org. And you'll see about these books if you want to look into that and learn more. And the last thing I wanna say is, Caring for patients with DGBI can be highly gratifying when you understand and believe in these disorders, can make an accurate diagnosis and establish patient collaborative care. Absolutely, it should not be viewed of as a challenge, but rather an opportunity to help so many, many people. So I like what you said about education, and certainly we're talking today on gut check. So uh, gut feelings is an easy thing to remember. So Doug, again, thank you so very much to our listeners on Apple and Spotify and other streaming networks. I'm Brian Lacey, a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Our guest today was Dr. Douglas Drossman, Emeritus Professor of Medicine and Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and founder, Emeritus President, and current CEO of the Rome Foundation. I hope you found this just as enjoyable as I did. 